Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, thank you for joining me for another episode of Felony Friday on the Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm really excited for this particular episode because my guest today is extremely passionate about shining a light on the broken criminal justice system. He's so passionate about it that he sent out a tweet rant of over 40 tweets in February that exposed a cop for lying about evidence and then went on to explain why injustice like this is built into the system. Before I introduce my guest, I do want to quickly note where you can find the show notes for this episode. This is episode 19 of Felony Friday, so that means the show notes can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF19. We're going to talk about a couple different articles, and I will link to them in the show notes. My guest today is Greg Doucette. Greg is a self-described computer scientist turned lawyer. He's an attorney in Durham, North Carolina, and a 2012 graduate of the North Carolina Central University School of Law. He also runs the blog titled Law Dev Null, which he began in 2009 during his time in law school. Greg made some headlines recently when he took to Twitter to share his experiences defending a young client from charges of reckless driving and uncovering the blatant lie told by a police officer. Greg has also announced recently that he is going to take his fight to the North Carolina State Senate as he is running in District 22 as a Republican. Greg, welcome to Felony Friday. John, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. It's great to have you here, and I'm looking forward to getting the story behind this Twitter rant and really seeing behind the scenes what was going on in your mind as you were uh, talking about it and also more about the case, of course. But before we do that, I do want to talk about your background a little bit and find out uh, why you got, first of all, how you became passionate about the law and how you became passionate about the criminal justice system. So first of all, why did you decide to become an attorney? Well, to be honest with you, it was kind of an accident. I originally came to college to study computer science. That's what my bachelor's degree is in. But I was an out-of-state student. I grew up in Virginia Beach in a military family. I moved to North Carolina to get away from my family and attended NC State University as an out-of-state student. I was there for about two years, and I couldn't afford to continue. So I ended up dropping out. I was homeless for a few months, and I got back on my feet loading trucks at UPS in the middle of the night from 3 a.m. to 8 a.m., eventually got a job at a law firm as a uh, file clerk. Because back then, I don't know how many of your readers remember back in the, uh, the early 2000s, technology was really popular. But to get a job that was paying a decent salary, you had to have some kind of either degree or certification. And to get the certification, you usually had to pay for it. So I didn't have the money to do all that. Got active in the, uh, the legal system to kind of pay the bills. Started out as a file clerk, became a paralegal, went on to become a clerk for the court system down in Wake County, Raleigh, North Carolina. And eventually, five years later finally made my way back to college, still determined to finish my computer science degree just so I could say that it was done, but realized that law was kind of the path that I had set myself on. Okay. And why did you choose North Carolina Central University? I I know you you wrote on your blog, I've been reading your blog, that it was actually your first choice. What was your reason behind that? Well, so there were a couple considerations to it. I had gotten very active in student government because of the fact that I was older than most of my colleagues. I had seen the system from a slightly different angle as a dropout. And when I graduated NC State, I was the president of our statewide association of student governments, which covered all 17 public universities in North Carolina. 
and I was running for my second term. So I needed to go to a public school to stay in office. I was either going to stay at NC State and get a PhD in economics or go to law school at either UNC Chapel Hill or North Carolina Central. And NCCU was a lot cheaper. It was half as much as UNC, which mattered to me as a guy that had dropped out before because I couldn't afford college. And the family environment at Central was a lot more nurturing. You know, the atmosphere was not as competitive. Folks kind of realized that we're all in it together, so to speak. A lot of us are going into similar professions. Central produces a lot of attorneys that go out and hang a shingle and start their own practice. So there's not as much push to be at the top of the class. You know, it's more of a push to make sure you pass the bar exam and that's it. Okay. So can you talk about a little bit, you know, you you graduate from NCC University about your early career path. You alluded to, you know, a lot of people who graduated from there going out and and hanging a a shingle and starting their own practice. I know you have your own practice now. Did you do that right away or did you work for a firm for a little while? No, I started out on my own right away. I um, had gotten accustomed to making my own decisions, doing the student government stuff where I was the guy in charge. You know, I didn't have to ask people permission for things. And the thought of having to do that with a boss just did not sit well with me. You know, they say it takes a unique type of person where you're willing to work 80 hours a week in order to avoid a 40 hour a week job. And that kind of, that was my personality. So I ended up passing the bar exam. I found out the last week in August, I got sworn in the first week in September. And the Monday after that, I was in court with the client and kind of building my practice from there. So that's kind of how we've gone. You know, we've now got to the point where we've got two offices, one here in Durham and another down in Charlotte. I have two attorneys that work for me and I love most every minute of it. <laughs> well, that's that's fantastic. What type of law do you specialize in? Well, what we do is we focus on people that are trying to essentially get through life. You know what I mean? So it, about half of it focuses on small business owners or people that want to start a small business. A lot of those folks honestly tend to be people with a criminal record that have a hard time getting a job. And we try and find some way where they can make a living and support their family without going back to doing something criminal. And we do a lot of work with students. North Carolina is one of the only states in the country that automatically treats every 16 and 17-year-old charged with a crime as an adult. So stuff that when I was in high school might have gotten me detention nowadays can get you an adult criminal charge in the Durham system. And that's going to affect you when you end up applying to college or trying to get a job years down the road. So I'm a glorified criminal defense attorney, but it just happens most of my clients tend to be young people that have made bad decisions, and we try and help them minimize the negative impacts of that long term. Is there a certain case that you've done recently that comes to mind for a a 17-year-old or (laughs) a young person that that comes to mind where it it potentially could have ruined their life and you were able to to help them out? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I had a young man who was uh, 17 in high school. And in North Carolina, when you're trying to drive, we've got this graduated permitting system where you can get a permit that enables you to do some things. As long as you can go six months without an issue, you get an upgrade. Six more months, you get an upgrade. And then eventually you get your full license. And this young man had been driving the family car through his neighborhood the morning before they were going to church on a Sunday. And according to him, as he was driving back, a cat came out of the road He slammed on the brakes, trying to not hit the cat, and in the process, the car spun out. Well, one of the neighbors apparently called police, told the police officer that he saw this young man doing donuts in the street. The officer came out to the scene, eventually found my 17-year-old at his house 
talked to him and his mom and said, you know, I saw the skid marks. It was obvious you were doing donuts. I could arrest you right here on the spot. Be thankful that I'm only giving you a citation. And the young man said, well, hey, that didn't happen. You know, talk to the neighbor's daughter. She was outside and she saw it. And the officer goes, I'm not going to take the words of two teenagers over some adults. Gave my guy a citation for reckless driving to endanger, which in North Carolina is a class two misdemeanor that could actually land you up to 60 days in jail, depending on your record. So luckily for the young man, his mom did not believe the officer, didn't think that her baby would do that sort of thing, and went out to the scene and took a bunch of pictures. She just uh, let me just jump in real quick. Was there any other reason why the, the mother wouldn't have believed the officer other than just because she was trusting her, her son's story? Was there well something else that she knew? I of? wouldn't be surprised if race was a factor as well. You know, we have issues in North Carolina with disproportionate policing of people of color. You know, for example, here in Durham, there was just a report released about two weeks ago where the city had commissioned RTI International, which is this you know, group of very smart people that analyze stuff. And they found that the Durham police force was deliberately targeting people of color, that you had a situation where what they called a veil of darkness happened, where at night it wasn't as pronounced because you couldn't see the race of the people being stopped. But during the day, they were deliberately targeting minorities. My 17-year-old client in this case was a black kid. The neighbors were white. Uh, the officer was white. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if race was kind of an issue there. You know, it's hit the point where you kind of see it in the news regularly that this is an ongoing problem, not just here in North Carolina, but across the country. The story that Greg is talking about here, if you guys aren't familiar with it, Greg had a an epic Twitter rant. And I hate using the word epic, but it was. That's the only word to describe it. It's phenomenal. I will link to it in the show notes. And, you know, I'm not going to ask him to read through it here. I'm not going to read through it here. But there might be some things that I'll quote later that were just extraordinary. One thing I did want to ask you about. So did this go all the way to court or were you able to get these charges removed from court? And also, can you talk about you said the mother did take pictures. Talk about that process of going through the pictures and that moment when you saw the picture that proved the officer was lying. Yep. Well, I'm going to hit that reverse order. So mom took a bunch of pictures and gave them to me. I ended up bringing her and her son to my office to talk. And, you know, the, the mom was a lot like my mom, you know, very protective of her son, nagged a lot. So while she was here in the room, her son didn't say a word. Like he just kept looking down. I took her phone, transferred stuff to my computer and said, you know, mom, step outside for a little bit. And I talked with the kid and he ended up, you know, breaking down in tears, talking about he just didn't want to hit the cat. So it was at that point where it, it kind of realized, OK, maybe he's actually telling me the truth. This isn't just some kind of story that, you know, folks make up. So I was going through the pictures and a lot of them aren't terribly useful. You know, a lot of folks take a lot of pictures of things that they think are important, but from the standpoint of a lawyer might not matter. But the part that really struck me was there were four different pictures of the roadway and looking at the skid marks, it's obvious there were no donuts at all. Looking at the width of the roadway, it's not even physically possible to have done a donut. And looking at the size of the skid marks, it's obvious that the guy was doing the speed limit. The you know, speed limit was 25 miles an hour. The skid marks were about 28 feet in length, give or take. That's similar to someone doing 25 miles an hour and abruptly slamming on the brakes. So we took that and went to the court. And what they do in Wake County is every file has its own shuck. It's basically the court file 
where there's the citation. It talks about the location where it happened and the time. And the cool part about the pictures, and this is something that you know some of your readers may not know about, most smartphones have what are called EXIF, E-X-I-F, metadata on pictures. Things like the timestamp, the latitude and longitude of where it was taken, stuff like that. And using that data, I could tell from the mom's phone that the pictures were taken right after the officer had left, right at the location where the officer had said the incident allegedly took place. That's something that you were able to extract yourself, or did you have to take that to, to somebody to, to work with? Well, on I that? could do it on my own because I got that computer science background, so I kind of knew how it worked. But there are plenty of EXIF viewers that you can get from you know the iTunes store if you're an Apple user, or the Google store if you use something else. It's something where it's, it's very common and used by a lot of different apps. So using that information, I pulled this file down in court, and it also includes notes from the officer. And the notes from the officer for this particular case repeated the part that there were these donuts and said that there were clear skid marks in the road showing a 360-degree spin. Well, you know, those of you that passed high school geometry know 360 degrees requires you to go all the way around in a circle. And I knew that just did not happen. So I had showed the shuck to the district attorney, also showed him the picture, and he agreed to dismiss the case. The case got thrown out. The shuck is? That's the court file. So it's basically an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that has, you know, what courtroom they're going to be in, the identifying information for the person who's at fault, the uh, law they supposedly broke, the location where it happened, the type of car they were driving, and the officer's notes on what actually took place. Okay, I said I wasn't going to read the rant. I do want to quote a couple. This is probably five or six tweets uh, together. I think there were something like 40 tweets altogether. So this is the piece of the rant that I just loved. This is what police brutality looks like. It's not just people having their rights violated and the shit kicked out of them. It's an innocent 17-year-old black kid trying to be a good human being and not running over a cat getting thrown headlong into our court system. It's having to come up with money you don't have to defend yourself against charges that shouldn't have been filed and recognizing that, but for photographs that someone had the foresight to take immediately, you'd have been convicted based solely on the word of a law enforcement officer who swore an oath to serve and protect, who then lied to the court with impunity. And I mean, I'm, all I can do is just is just clap for that because that, <laughs> that's just phenomenal. And it's great to have a lawyer and someone who, I said in the intro, you're going to be running for state senate, uh, speaking out about this because it is an enormous problem. Could you just talk about your feelings while you were going through plugging away? And I don't know if you were on your phone thumbing this or typing on a computer, but what was your intention of, of putting this out on Twitter? Well, it was kind of a delayed reaction. You know, I got the file, talked to the DA, got the case dismissed, and I was happy. I was done. You know, I walked out of the courthouse. I posted on Facebook that the case had been dismissed. Everything was great. I got in my car and I was planning on going to lunch. And it wasn't until I was on the highway driving back when it dawned on me, you know, holy hell, this officer just said that he had seen these 360 degree skid marks in the road and that's not what happened. It hit me that he had been lying about it. So that was when I started tweeting. I hate to confess, but I was tweeting while driving because it just it bothered me so much. That's what started. I started at the stoplight outside of the Bojangles and ended up continuing into the Bojangles parking lot. I was still tweeting while I was ordering my lunch. I was tweeting all through lunch. And it was just something that I really didn't have much intent by. It was just kind of to be cathartic. 
You know, if you go through some of my old tweets, I've complained about cases before, but no one ever noticed. And it just happened that this particular case, I guess, resonated with folks and it ended up going everywhere. We'll kind of work backwards here. I do want to talk about at the beginning of your rant, you sort of premise the rant by saying that you don't hate police. And then you go on to describe how you view police. And I was kind of curious why you decided to start with this statement. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, I filed to run for office back in December and it's not common to see criminal defense attorneys on my side of the fence, you know, at least not openly. There are a bunch of Republican defense attorneys because, hey, it's the one job where you get to fight the state every single day. But it's not common to see them vocally both in favor of ensuring we've got due process and saying, hey, I'm a Republican, vote for me. So over the past two months, from December until February when that case happened, a lot of times I would catch heat saying that you know I was anti-law enforcement because I would post a story where police would do something ridiculous in New York or Chicago or anywhere else and say, hey, this is wrong. You know, This violates the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth Amendment or the Sixth Amendment. This is not what our civil liberties are about. So I needed to preface that on the front end, that the rant was not because I think all police are terrible, but it's like any other profession. You've got bad eggs, and those bad eggs need to be identified instead of just you know letting it slide. Absolutely. And you really – you pointed to it in that quote I read before, the problems inherent within the system. And I, I was kind of curious to get your take on – I know that you're running as a Republican, and I, I think I've heard that you have some libertarian views – how kind of the drug war plays into this? Obviously, this case had nothing to do with drugs. I mean, does the drug war have an impact? I mean, I think a lot of it is all intertwined. You know, what happened was in the 80s and 90s with the war on drugs, you ended up with far more crimes to be charged with. You ended up with far stiffer penalties for it. And in North Carolina in particular, you saw a dramatic increase in the amount of court costs so that the court system wasn't just about law and order, but it's about fundraising. It's about revenue. You know, in a given drug case, if you are a rare pot smoker, you happen to get caught, you're going to get the case dismissed, but not before you pay $180 in court costs and $250 to a drug assessment class. You know, and that is for every single weed case that comes through the system. You're going to end up paying that to get a dismissal. You also have to pay it if you get convicted. And in every county in North Carolina, outside of traffic tickets, drug tickets are the number one citation. So here in Durham, on any given day, weed charges alone, you bring in enough money that you can pay for all of the DAs. You know, that same type of focus on issuing the citations to bring in the money bleeds over into traffic and everything else. You know, we issue so many traffic tickets in Wake County that statistically there's one ticket issued for every four residents every single year. So in any given presidential election cycle from the time, you know, President Obama was sworn in until he leaves office, the odds of you getting a ticket statistically are 100%. And for every single citation, Typically, your minimum court costs are $188 a piece. Sometimes it's even higher. So in Raleigh, the county where this uh, Wake County, where this happened to have taken place, they'll have enough speeding tickets in one day to pay for just about everyone's salary for a couple months. You know, Wake County brings in seven million dollars just in traffic ticket revenue every single year, which finances every single member of the DA's office, the public defender's office, the judges, the clerks. 
just on speeding tickets alone, just for that one county. So you're running for state Senate in District 22, I think it is. What will you be able to do as a state senator to affect change here in the criminal justice system? Well, a lot of these issues are put in place at the state level. You got to be in the legislature to make it change. The amount of court costs, the type of stuff that's going to be you know, treated as a crime in the first place. And on the court reform side, one of the first things I want to do is change what it means to be an adult versus a juvenile offender. You know, we are the only state in the entire country that treats 16-year-olds as adults. We're one of only five states that does the same for 17-year-olds. You know, everywhere else, you start in the juvenile system, and then we can put you in the adult system if you've done something that's particularly bad. But here, you're automatically an adult no matter what. And because of that, you end up with an adult record no matter what. If you end up getting arrested at 16, the case, let's say it gets dismissed— 10 years from now, when someone does a background check for you, that arrest is still going to show up, even though the case itself got dismissed. And that can hurt trying to get into college or get a job or anything else. So I want to focus on raising the age. I want to decriminalize weed, try and end the drug war as best we can here in North Carolina. I want to change our expungement laws so that people that have had one mistake 20 years ago, they can have that stuff expunged, deleted from their record without having to pay a $175 application fee and sit around for a year to get everything handled. You know, there's a whole boatload of stuff to go through. I've got like 25 different things I want to do with the court system. And that's just for me, you know, sitting down and thinking about it for a little bit. But let me jump in and ask you a question while I'm thinking of it. I noticed you said you wanted to to decriminalize weed. You didn't say legalize. Do you have a preference there or what's what's the reasoning for decriminalization? I'm just nervous about legalizing it. You know, I saw Colorado do it. Everything seems to be fine so far. But I'm one of those types where I want to make reform. Let's make reform. But we don't have to swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. Let's at least stop destroying people's lives by removing it as a criminal offense. And then, you know, once we do that and we don't have any kind of crazy results, then we consider legalization. But kind of ending the war on drugs has got to be priority one before we do anything else. I think with legalization is it, you know, it's used as a revenue generator and it's used to, as a libertarian, I look at it, they use it as a way to grow government even larger and potentially maybe infringe on a different set of rights. So as a libertarian, I definitely favor, you know, decriminalizing it and keeping people out of jail and not taxing them and bringing that stuff into the light of day. So if people do have a problem or something, that they can get treatment. Right. So I would definitely agree with you there. We spend millions of taxpayer dollars prosecuting people who are addicted or mentally ill, and that's insane to me. It absolutely is. So what can the Felony Friday audience do to help out your Senate campaign, your state Senate campaign? First thing I would say is follow me on Twitter. When I had filed back in December, I was focusing on a more traditional campaign where I'm sitting here and you know calling people trying to raise money. And now that I've got a bit more of an audience that's shifted, I can actually do some more grassroots stuff that we couldn't do before. So I would ask that you follow me on Twitter. Have your friends follow me on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It is Greg, G-R-E-G underscore Doucette, D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. We've also got a Facebook page up. If you go to facebook.com slash vote T Greg, you can follow that as well. And We're in the process of getting our actual website going as we speak. We just had the first pages put up this morning. That itself will be at votetgreg.com. Really, if y'all can help us spread the word, that will be the biggest help. 
if you've got the resources and you're so inclined, we'll happily take donations as well. But increasing the volume about the stuff that we're standing for and the problems that we're going to fix is what's most important right now. Are you still able to practice law as a state senator? Yes, sir. It's actually North Carolina is kind of weird. We have a part-time legislature where they only meet from January until June in odd-numbered years and then April until June for even-numbered years. So you actually have to keep a full-time job. Or what actually has happened is you end up being fabulously rich either from your past profession or you're retired or you married well. That tends to be the bulk of the people currently serving in the legislature. You've got very few folks that are actually doing day-to-day labor like the vast majority of their constituents. When you first said that, I thought, well, that's a good thing that people will have to work. But yeah, it probably does attract a lot of the wealthy who don't need to work anyway. So maybe it kind of backfires. Yeah, you end up with the wrong sort gravitating to politics as it is. It makes it that much worse when uh, you got to be able to pay the bills to do what you're doing. Okay. Well, Greg, I did want to ask you one more question. You know, you're going to have maybe a lot of new Twitter followers here. Can you promise another Twitter rant coming up in the near future? (laughs) You will most likely see one soon. Yes. I've had a couple more since I went on a tirade talking about Bill Clinton and the crime bill and what an abject disaster that was for so many millions of families. It's going to happen. You know, not to go off topic here, but I just talked about that on last week's episode of Felony Friday, uh, where we talked about the Virginia governor who, uh, you know, made it legal for felons to vote. And I thought it was kind of ironic because a lot of they're saying a lot of those felons will vote for Hillary Clinton. And probably a lot of them ended up in jail because of Bill Clinton's crime. Yep, law. Agreed. So that's a sort of a strange thing there. But that's a little off topic. Politics are bizarre. Very bizarre. Well, Greg, thanks for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Um, I really do appreciate all the work you're doing as an attorney, first of all, and then also um, on Twitter to shine a light on injustice in the criminal justice system, and then taking it even one step farther and running for public office to give a voice to people who are being abused by the criminal justice system. This is abuse. So I want to thank you for that. John, thank you, buddy. And thank you to all your listeners for listening in. All right. Have a great day. Thank Greg. you, too. Well, that's a wrap for the show today. And guys, show's like today's show, are so incredibly encouraging for me personally. It is so refreshing to know that there are people like Greg Doucette who are actively working in our criminal justice system, actively working to right the wrongs that far too many ignore. It's just fantastic, and I want to thank Greg again for the work he's doing. Hopefully he wins his state senate seat and can continue his work in a public forum. I want to thank the Felony Friday audience. You guys are the reason that I keep doing what I'm doing. You guys are the reason that I go out and I find guests like Greg Doucette. So please, if you like what you hear, then please help us to grow the show because that is the ultimate goal here at Lions of Liberty. We want to reach as many ears as possible. We want to reach as many people and change as many people's hearts and minds as possible. You can help us by sharing the show on Facebook or Twitter and by subscribing to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, guys, if you're looking for a place to talk about liberty with like-minded friends, please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Forum. It's our private Facebook group. You can find us just by searching Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook. Click join and we'll get you approved immediately. As always, it was another great show today. And thank you so much for joining me. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. (laughs) 